are these changes strengthening us, strengthening our resilience, strengthening our cognition, strengthening our ability for self-reliance, or are they weakening us? Welcome to Insert Human. This is a show that is not for everyone. It's for seekers, people like you, hopefully, who are searching for solutions to your problems, the world's problems, and everything in between. The conversations to come are gonna show you how finding the truth of our humanity is the magic key to solving pretty much anything. Between my monologues, my dialogues with brilliant guests, and your good questions, you're going to learn how to insert human into everything, and in doing so, realize a better life and one day a better world. So welcome everybody to another episode of Insert Human. Thrilled to be with you today and thrilled to have a truly wonderful human, I think frankly brilliant human on the show with me. Before I introduce her, let me just tell you how this all came to be. As I think some of you know, I'm writing a book titled Technology is Dead. Part of writing a book involves research, reading as much as I can, very serendipitously, a dear friend of mine forwarded a link to me that was a book review of a book by the title of Reengineering Humanity. And the book review was done by none other, written by none other than Laura Drake, our guest on the show today. And I read the review and I thought to myself, my God, this person has nailed the problem, pointed out some of the solution and I think would be an incredible guest on the show. I then had to undertake forensic science to find her, which, and we'll, she'll explain that in a second, but I found her and uh, lo and behold, she's with us today. So welcome Laura Drake to Insert Human. We are thrilled to have you. Thank you, I'm thrilled to be here. So I mentioned that the show is about the philosophy of technology because Laura describes or defines herself as a philosopher of technology. And when she and I spoke, I think it was last week about being on the show, one of the th most interesting things she shared with me was that when she went into school, college, she was planning on being a computer science major, right? Is that right? Right. And then something happened. And so I asked her to just tell us a little bit of that early life story and how it Put her on the trajectory to where she is and where her perspective is today. So throughout my childhood, I was a math and science geek, and I was very quickly a phone freak, if people who might be of the age to remember that term, fascination with phones and numbers and technology and early computers, early computers, uh, Lawrence Hall of Science in Berkeley learned how to program in BASIC, you know, back when there were teletypes and stuff like that, when, you know, I was maybe eight years old, nine years old, 10 years old, all this stuff. So all of this had put me on a trajectory. You know, I'm a geek, basically. I take apart hardware. I take apart software. I play with computers. I repair computers. I'm everybody's computer help service. I was going to go into that. Obviously, it was a natural thing that I would major in computer science and end up as a computer scientist. And I did. I actually started out my college as a computer science major. I suppose at some point, probably early on, I said, you know what? I don't want to be spending my life in front of these algorithms, these, you know, basic algorithms at the time. I mean, we were talking about programs like Pascal and things like that. And I said, I don't want to sit here in front of all these numbers all my life. There's a whole world out there. I was entering college at 17 and I said, there's a whole world out there. And I started to get an interest in the world. 
which means that I started to get, you know, very profound interest in the whole world. Mm-hmm. And I said, this was not the world. The world is out there. I want the, I want to be in the world. Right. So I ended up basically saying, what I'm essentially saying is I was interested in being human. Did you see that then? Or yes. that's what you ultimately in retrospect figured out? I think I, that part I probably figured out retrospectively. What I knew at the time is I want to be in the world. So it's sort of this, it's very close to that revelation, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But at that time, no, I didn't distinguish between oh, this is technology and this is human, but I knew that I'm either in the world or I'm on a screen playing with numbers. Right. And right. I'm sitting there. Basically, I think part of the revelation happened to me when I was in this one course where we were supposed to work on teams and get through the course of a semester in the engineering and computer science. Uh, there was a book we were supposed to get through on our own. It was an unguided course. And my partners kept dropping out. They kept saying, this is too hard. I can't do this. I can't do this. And they kept dropping out and I get a new one, you know, and, and basically this thing filtered out like 80% of the class. Oh my God. In the end, I had to finish it by myself because of that constant merry-go-round of partners. And I think maybe at that time I said, you know, this is I'm, I'm essentially that feeling of being in solitude with a computer and without the people. Right. And I think something that had an impact somehow. I think. And and when did you start observing what the technology technology this the impact on society? When did it move from being about you and your relationship with technology versus the world versus the relationship between technology and the world? If that right. Makes sense. So I guess really that was throughout the 90s. I was very, I was still a big technology geek, even though I wasn't doing technology. It wasn't until I'd say 2002 would be the would be the landmark moment. Okay. Where I started to see changes in the people around me. Tell me I more. Tell me see, more. <laughs> I, it was because of email. Email was the first thing that I started to notice that people, many, many people had pulled away from each other and instead they were relying on this this written form that they were starting to see their communications as transactional, as data, if you will, is what I put in today's terms, that 60% of emails are misunderstood. So to me, I started to see this come up as a barrier to communication. Interesting. I started to see it as a burden when my inbox would fill up. And I've been inbox zero since before there was a such thing as inbox zero. You know, I started out keeping that box empty all the time. And from the beginning, it was a burden. It was actually hindering real human connection. And I mean, honestly, Laura, that was prescient because I, I was on the phone yesterday with two guys, the Shines, Peter Shine and Ed Shine. And they, they talk about leadership models and they're, Anyway, the point of the conversation that we got into yesterday as it relates to what you just said is Edge Shine's point of view that this transactional level of human existence has taken over. The higher levels of, of human existence and engagement, which are more intimate and more meaning laden, have been obliterated by the volume of transaction. And I think that that's what you were sensing in 2002, that this email thing was just a transaction machine. Yeah. And, and it was removed. And it was that I found that the human element did not get through. Most of it was cut out in the translation. It didn't translate. So it's like the other the biggest thing that I saw at the time is that it was asynchronous. Well, if it's asynchronous, then where's the connection? 
I mean, the phone is good because if you can't be somewhere in person, at least the phone is synchronous. You know, it's real time, like what we're doing right now. It's real time. And the email was asynchronous. So it's supposed to be for convenience. But what it is, is it cuts you off in time and space both. So, you know, with the phone, you're cut off in space, but you can't help that. But the email, you're also fragmented in time. So you lose both time and space. You lose everything human. And I started to see it come as a barrier to communication that people were opting for convenience over connection and communication. And I said back to myself in 2002, I said, I will never become a captive of this technology. I said that to myself. I made a vow to myself then. And then as it's exploded, everything else, I've held to that vow. How did you do? I mean, I, I think I said to you the other day when we ended our call, I commended you for your bravery. <laughs> like you were a single salmon going upstream against a downstream current. <laughs> well, you <laughs> How know, did you do that? There was no really not a choice for me. For me, it's it's about preserving what's meaningful. I mean, preserving oh preserving everything that's real in my in my existence required it. Preserving everything that was human in my existence required it. But were you alienated by your social circle? Were friends ridiculing you for becoming sort of off the grid or like, I don't know. How to... I was very good. Well, no, I was very good at essentially hiding it in a way. I would kind of just sort of subconsciously kind of move people away from, you know, like I wouldn't give out my email address. If I went to speak at an event, I would only give people my phone number. I wouldn't give them my email address. In fact, for two years, from two thousand three years, 2003 to 2005, I cut my internet completely. My God. And it was a way of recentering, okay, what is my, you know, what is this, something is happening, something is changing. And, and so when, by the time I turned it back on, I was already really primed for, okay, now I know how I'm going to deal with this. But no, I was good at just making excuses. Oh, I'm getting too many emails or I just don't like to do my, you know, I would just do it in a way and in even ways without people really knowing it. I, I, you know, instead of giving my email as a contact information, I give my phone number and I'd say, call me, you can call me anytime next week. That'd be great. And people go, okay. And so I really was able to, in other words, I kept it down to bare minimum that way. That I didn't get over, I prevented myself from being overwhelmed with the kind of volume that you're talking about. There are some instances where it couldn't be avoided. That's fine. Email. Right. But my point is that I kept it to the bare minimum that it had to be. And anything that didn't have to be, I kept everybody off it and stayed because it, you know, stay in the real world. Right. You know, I want to just comment on a couple of things. One is this idea of asynchronicity basically being a, a way we avoid intimacy because it's not it's not one to one really eventually it's one to one but it's so indirect and the time frame is so often elongated that it's not you can not get away with it but it allows you to avoid intimacy the other part which i just want to comment on is in writing my book i've been studying too strong a word but contemplating the history of innovation you know, going back to Gutenberg's press and what was the underlying motivation for most innovation in the world, particularly as we move into the technology arena. And I came to believe, and it's, you know, it's not irrefutable, but it's plausible that the primary motivation for most innovation and specifically technological innovation has been speed, AKA convenience. And what's interesting to me about that is why is that better? <laughs> like, 
Well, like, it's, I guess is, it's, it's better for capitalism. I mean, for capitalism, for money to move and things to move and everything to move, you know, but just to go back to your, let me go back to your other question real quick, because just getting to 2008 social media smartphones, right? So I just opted out of that entire thing from the beginning. And so what I'm trying to say though, is that I didn't have to, after 2018 to shorten everything, I didn't, I was able to sort of come out of the closet with it because people started to see that it was messing them up. And so now it's easy to avoid these things. It's easy now. It used to be, so it used to be, I had to kind of hide it and work around it and just kind of finagle things to keep that stuff out of my way. But now it's easy because people, people, even if they're stuck with it, they understand, like, you know, they wish that they were like me and they weren't stuck with it. I see that now. And it's very fascinating to me. I mean, I think I see it too, which is if you go back to 2002, you were a, a lone, not wolf, but, uh, you know, out there kind of sort of alone waving a flag saying, beware, beware. Then 2008, social media goes to the roof, but you were probably had a few people around you. I mean, now we're in 2021. Do you see more and more people getting on your bandwagon or? I, yeah. I mean, I see for me, when I tell people, oh, I don't have a smartphone, they actually envy me now. I didn't you used to be able to tell people I used to have to hide the fact that, yeah, I'm doing everything you're doing that's necessary with, with a flip phone and a, and, a, and a home telephone landline, you know, and, and a computer, basically, just with the Internet, but without the. The basically the purpose of the smartphone is the cameras and the social media, which I had zero use for. But now it's like, okay, I don't have to hide it. I can pull out that flip phone and they envy me. They say, I wish I could do that. And that's so in a sense, and they're saying I am smothered in emails. I've got 5,000 unread emails in my inbox. And they look at me and they go, how? That I wish I could not have to be tethered to this thing all the time. And so it's about, yes, I do email. Yes, I do text messaging. Yes, I use the internet, but I use it for me. I use it for human purposes. I don't let it use me. And that is the key right there. And the thing about speed, when you get back to talking about speed, is that the large organizations, which are now kind of inhuman entities, large organizations, algorithms, et cetera, they prize efficiency beyond everything else. So that just want to move everything up to machine speeds. And the problem with that is that they're now trying to force humans to move at machine speeds. Humans can't move at machine speeds and be healthy. So when you see all these investment bankers, lawyers, you know, upper middle class professional people making a couple hundred thousand dollars a year, but have been having to work 17 hours a day and be on at anyone's beck and call 24 seven to an email or a text message or whatever, and, and literally crush all their personal life. That's the consequence. When one of these companies says, if you, if you hit the wall, climb the wall. So what they're doing is they're pushing humans outside of human tolerance and endurance, and they are crushing the human soul in that manner. And this is what happens. We cannot go at machine speeds. And so for me, I'm determined. I live my life at human speeds. I don't let anyone try to push me to to machine speeds ever. That's one of my big, biggest resistances. I move real fast as a human. I am fast at everything, but not at machine speeds, not at machine, you know, ding, 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 you know, jump, jump, jump. No. 
it also suggests to me, and I think the reason why I said last week when we talked that you were brave or courageous, I can't remember the specific word, but they were similar, is a lot of this, I believe, a lot of the transaction, call it addiction, is derivative of our need for validation. That having stuff coming at us implies that we are wanted, we are needed, we are important. And actually, when when Sean Parker, one of the founders of Facebook, was interviewed not that long ago, he said something to the effect of, we knew we had a multi-billion dollar business on our hands when we realized the entire platform was about social validation. So I'm just going to say that your capacity to not succumb shows solid self-esteem, solid self-love. Like, you didn't need that form of validation. And that's, that's remarkable, truly. And I commend you for that because thank you. there aren't that many people I know that have that strength, that inner strength to, to not be seduced. In fact, it was to me, I know, I know it was always boggled my mind that people are attracted to it and, and compelled by it. And they find it because I actually found it repulsive because it cut off human connections you know, like social media, why would I want to broadcast a thing to a couple, maybe 15% of 200 or 20,000 people or whatever the algorithm decides. And then am I really, I'm not talking to anyone I'm talking, I'm just feeding data into an algorithm. And so to me, that's not even social. It's antisocial. And basically the people that I choose to have around myself, to have around me socially is a small group of people that are deep and meaningful and thoughtful and that care and that are fully human, let's say, that are here in the real world in real times and real places. And that is what I surround myself with. I love that too. And it, you know, for me, the way I articulate it is as I, as I get older, I realize not to be morbid, but my time is not infinite, that I will eventually go to the great maker, whoever that might be. And that therefore, I have this somewhere between a responsibility and opportunity to curate, to more actively curate my life, beginning with the people that are in it. And I I even think for a lot of people, transaction addiction extends to volume of relationships. Yeah, but there's no curation happening. So it's just sort of I'm, I'm talking to many, many people all the time doing a little, 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 but if you actually sort of examine it, a lot of that is not really human. It's transactional. And it's not even relationships. It's really about, you're not even transacting with those other humans who are so-called your Facebook follower, friend, whatever they stupidly call it or whatever. You are transacting with a machine. You are giving a machine energy. You are feeding data. You are feeding, you're training AIs. You are a laborer for free and you don't even know it because you're getting some fake pleasure out of it. It's a simulacrum and it's a simulated world that these people have been pulled into outside. They've been pulled out of their own reality, out of our native habitat as humans into a fake simulated cage, if you will. Nicholas Carr called the glass cage. He called it based on automation, but I'm going to call it based on these little these little silos that are created in this false imaginary world that somebody made for their mind. So you're actually giving up your mind and you are losing literally your mind because it is being turned. It's like you're turning a human being inside out and sucking out all the contents into some big algorithmic juggernaut that doesn't care about you. And not only is that not, not a relationship, I think it also potentially 
takes you away from having a real relationship in the real world. And my example of that is right before COVID hit, there was a piece in the New York Times about a program. I may have mentioned this to you, a program in California, a residential six-week program for gamers, for video gamers to relearn how to socialize. Wow. So they would well, like they go- teach college course and conversation now for new generations because that people have forgotten how to, they're afraid to have a real-time conversation because they because it's unrehearsed. So we're actually crippling people with this technology. We are crippling their their normal survival capabilities that were learned over over millennia, literally crippling them. Which is sort of the point about asynchronicity, you know, allowing you to avoid intimacy because with synchronicity, you have like we're communicating. We can't run away from this. We are looking at each other, talking and listening to each other. And and I think for some percentage of people, that's that's a a off putting or or terrifying possibility. Yeah. Yeah, it's terrifying to them. And that's that's scary to me because we can't survive as a species without the ability to band together. That's how we evolved. That's how every species evolves. It band people, you know, members of the species band together to survive. Nobody survives alone and nobody survives alone in a glass cubicle made by an algorithm. Right. That we human beings are being enfeebled at remarkable levels that that I mean to imagine I never if you would ask me in 2002 are people going to be scared to have a conversation? You know, even I would have laughed at them. I mean, who could have imagined in 18, 19 years that we would be here? Right, right. Let's switch over to um, how I first connected with you. This The book review you did for, it's a website called The Technoskeptic. Is that, and have you been part of that organization or that group for a while? I wrote one book review for it. I'm planning to write more for it. Absolutely. So just as a, as a show for the Technoskeptic folks, for those of you that are Techno skeptic. I encourage you to visit the site. It's got some great pieces on it. One of which was this book review by by Laura, and it was about a book written by Brett Frischman and Evan Selinger titled "Reengineering Humanity." And I've read her the review that Laura did probably five times now because it's so well written and to me just spot on in terms of the problem we have. And I'd, I'd love for you just to riff a little bit on. On your takeaway from the book and also your own, you know, your own personal perspective on what the authors are trying to communicate. Sure. Well, you know, definitely that that book helped me to understand that it's important to shift the focus from looking at what the technology is doing to looking what humans are doing and what's happening to humans, actually, as opposed to, you know, what is technology just making people do? What is it? How or how are how are machines changing? No, we have to look at how humans are changing. And so there are two big points that they have that struck me the most harshly would be that they are manufacturing cheap engineered bliss for humans instead of real deep, meaningful, healthy things that make us grow, nourishing things for our souls and even our bodies, everything, right? And from the food we eat to the, you know, the algorithmic replacements for our relationships, cheap engineered bliss. So you take back to the old consumer society, look at, you know, how food has been dumbed down into very things that are not necessarily good for us. People have been addicted to things that are not good for us, I guess. Um, But I mean, when you put that into, say, people get a dopamine hit out of uh, getting a friend request or whatever, it's that's that's cheap engineered bliss. It's totally fake, of course. But the second part of what they have to say, which is even which is really their central point, 
is that basically humans are being remade by these technologies to into behaviors that will emulate simple machines. That's a scary thought. That is. And so it's one thing to say that we see technology becoming more human-like, but somebody else said, well, humans are also becoming more machine-like. But these authors would say, yes, but not in a good way. They are being put into a position where they will be indistinguishable from simple machines. That's what they say. Well, if you go back to efficiency or as speed as the measure of everything, that's what capitalist society holds up as productivity, then sure, we should look, we should look more and more like machines. But not just in the job market, but in every aspect, meaning right. that Humans are being re-engineered to become indistinguishable from simple machines. So not even complex machines, simple machines. All that we have that is deep, our ability to think, all of that, that if you did a reverse Turing test, which is what they talk about in that book, a reverse Turing test to say, could you distinguish a human being from a simple machine? It's not because the machine got all these capabilities that it was able to reach human intelligence, quote unquote, or simulate human human level cognition and artificial general intelligence, for example, uh, that would simulate correctly a human where nobody could tell the difference between it and a human being. But what if you did it the other way and you took a human being and you said, could you distinguish that human being from a simple machine? Is that human being come down to the level of the machine rather than the machine come up to the level of the human? Because if we say we're 20 years away from an AGI or, or whatever, we have narrow AI, but what if we're 20 years from an AGI? What if we never have an, an AGI? That implies that there's some complexity in the human that has to requires further engineering to reach the level where you can have an AGI that could basically pose as a human successfully and fool everybody. That it could do the level of complexity that is required to pass for a complex human with all of our complexities. But that's, that's suggesting that humans have complexities that machines lack. Right. So instead of giving the machine those complexities, what if you took them away from the human and brought the human down to where the machine is today, right. which is not even at AGI level? What if you did that? That's what that book says to me. Right. And that's why we have to look at what, what are the changes, are the changes that are happening to humans as humans good or are they not good it's not a question of whether they make our life easier it would be easy to just sit in a stem chair and watch a screen all the time that would be easy but it would be easy never to move around ever but is so what's easy for us is not what is in our survival interests as a species are these changes strengthening us strengthening our resilience strengthening our cognition strengthening our ability for self-reliance or are they weakening us? Are they crippling us? Are they removing capabilities from us? Because for every functionality that gets into the machine, a human functionality of a human being could be taken away and replaced and replaced not in the job market, but in our life. Right. And to me, that all points to a lack of clarity regarding what constitutes progress or what constitutes collective success. It's something that I've observed in a lot of different aspects of society, but at the most macro level, what is the goal here for our species? And well, I, think I think our goal should be to strengthen ourselves, to give us more innate, to basically bring out the, the best in ourselves, the strength, 
the caring, the empathy, the, the connectivity between ourselves, connection, human connection, and concern for species level problems among us, essentially widening our horizons, like Gene Roddenberry, Gene Roddenberry's vision on Star Trek inspired me as a small child. And somebody very close to me said, you know, that represents natural human development, which you see on there is portraying the 22nd century, the 24th century, whatever, normal human development. But when you look at how the humans interact with technology on Star Trek and how they interact with technology in the real world, you see that the reality did not match the vision. Because in that reality, humans have gotten rid of poverty, war, you know, et cetera. But at the same time, they have evolved. Human nature got stronger, better, less cutthroat, more bigger purview, if you will. Expansive purview, but more for the good and definitely protective of the species. But, but the reason that the normal human development could happen in a fictional situation, if you put that, that the only way it could happen in reality is if you are not smothered and crushed and subsumed and replaced by technology, where human nature is, is put in this vice grip, where it has no space to expand and better itself. It has no space to grow. It's being constricted by something else that actually is out competing us because we allowed it to. In Star Trek, technology serves people and human goals. And it's in the background, it's not in the foreground. So if you think, what, are, what is my vision? I signed up for Roddenberry's vision. I signed up for Roddenberry's vision of humanity when I was six years old, and I stick to that. And the question then, and I, I think I'm aligned, I'm not, I'm not a Star Trek buff, but I think what you're articulating makes perfect sense to me. I think that the next practical question is, you know, there has been no governing body guiding the marauding ways of technology. It's just we as humans have allowed it in part because we get seduced by convenience or we get seduced by validation. As we move forward as a species or global society, how do we get back in the driver's seat? Because it feels like we're, we're not even in the, we're in the trunk. We're not even in the backseat. Yeah. <laughs> and then no, one, of the you, the one of the things you point out in terms of re-engineering humanity is the authors are brilliant at articulating the problem. And the solution part of the equation is a little a little light. I'd, I'd love to sort of wrap up our chat today with your thoughts about how can we move forward, as I said, getting back in the driver's seat. Let me just say about that book, that book is probably one of the best books, if not the best book I've read on the subject in the last 10 years. And that's wow. the same. All right. All right. That's why I was inspired to review it. Good for you. So what's happened is the world has, essentially the world is moving out of phase with humanity. It's moved out of phase. That the world right now is being made for, for the technology. It's being made for algorithms. It's not, it's being made for AIs. It is not being made for humans. So right now, humanity is out of focus. It's out of focus in the picture. It's not noticed. It's a fuzzy image. It's a fuzzy after image that's not clear in the frame. And that's what I mean, that the world has moved out of phase with humanity. So I think in terms of moving forward, the first thing is to reclaim our humanity. It involves two things. One, the, the ability to band together to create human structures to act upon the world in human ways. That's number one. Because right now, most humans are being acted upon. They have become passive receptacles of technological action. So the technology, big tech, people with that kind of power are acting onto them. They are become passive recipients. So it's about saying, no, we are going to, we are going to act upon the world again. That is what 
every species does if it's going to survive, it acts onto the world. And that doesn't mean destroy the world, which is what we've done in the past. It doesn't mean destroy the world, but it also doesn't mean that whatever we did to nature in the past, that we allow machines to do to us. Because that's exactly what's happening. We use nature as a resource for our convenience. And now, and now, and again, the same real same thing is being used that we are now being used as a resource, as, as a resource for expanding technology at our expense, in a sense, as a species. Right. Our number of connections is diminishing, its number of connections is expanding, and, and it's it's dynamic. So we have to put ourselves back in the frame. And that means, okay, so being able to band together. So we have human problems. Being able to band together as humans without technological mediation to work on those problems. That is number one. And the crucial term is without technological mediation because technological mediation in the way it's normally used is used to fragment synchronicity into asynchronicity to make it unnecessary for people to gather in real times and places with mm-hmm. real people, right? Mm-hmm. It basically passes off responsibility for things. Oh, and if we just put it, broadcast it out there, it'll happen by itself. No, it won't. Taking responsibility for it. So it's about our taking responsibility for our future, that we will write our own future or we will be written as data to the future by machines. And is the our governments, like when you say our, who are you talking about? Our governments are not functioning as governments in a way. They are essentially, to me, neoliberalism is all about we are cutting the cord with the people. We are cutting the cord and we are answering to big, large organizations. Our mission now is not the well-being of our populace. Our mission now is to make the world safe for these big, large organizations to keep doing whatever they feel like doing. That's the purpose of the government now. I don't care who's in office. That is the purpose of the state and and advanced civilization. We cannot rely on government. In fact, the reason government has become like that is because we have stepped back from our self-reliance and our power with each other, which which is we need each other. And everybody is an atom. Everybody is atomized. That's why the people have lost all their power. People don't understand that. They've given it up. And a, a, so- a quick a, a quick insert here. I had an interview with somebody on the show recently, and, and she said, technology has made us all anonymous. Like everything is anonymous, you know, that we don't know each other. We don't know the person next door. We don't know who delivers our, our Amazon stuff. We don't. And the anonymity is as atomizes to the point of almost irrelevance. You're like, whoa. People have become interchangeable. They've become interchangeable that we treat each other like interchangeable people because that's what that, you know, again, we are learning. We are people are, I shouldn't say we, because I'm not one of those people right. and neither, I'm sure neither, neither. I'm <laughs> and trying you're not, not either. So I'm I should, trying. Yeah. yeah, but I mean, people have internalized the way that you treat each other transactionally like a machine for purposes of efficiency, which is the top goal of the machine is efficiency, right? That's what's written into every artificial process is efficiency. And if people internalize that, they will lose all of their power because efficiency states that we should not exist, actually. Efficiency states that we have we have no purpose here if all our functions in our lives can be replaced by something else. That we will we will enter eventually a state of functional extinction, which means that we may still have some numbers here, but we will no longer have an ability to affect our own ecosystem, and that is what functional extinction means. And that will be the outcome unless we reclaim our own responsibilities for ourselves. 
And that means with each other. So when I say it can't be mediated, what I mean by that is it cannot be primarily mediated. It doesn't mean that, oh, you and I couldn't speak like this. It means that we are grounded in the real world and we take responsibility for it and acting upon it in ways that restore our power. And when we restore our power, it it not only pulls us back out of that virtual world and back and plant our anchor back in here in our natural habitat in the real world, but it also gets us back our political power, believe it or not, because it's human structures that, that create that power base that, that, that the governments, corporations, whatever, it's like a balance of power thing. Right. That they right. that if there's nothing there, they will anything that believes in efficiency, like an inhuman corporation or an inhuman government, will simply run right over you if you don't have any power and you don't have to be noticed. You have to carve out space for yourself. So we have to carve out space for ourselves, both as citizens, but now as human beings and as humanity. I would say we need a humanity first movement, and I don't uh, mean yeah. like. I don't mean like Andrew Yang's humanity first because that's not broad enough. That's just about job. I mean a humanity first movement that puts our concerns before technology. It doesn't mean you have to get rid of technology. It means you have to relegate it to whatever serves us, us, people, well-being. It's funny. I have been contemplating and potentially hoping that based on the work that I've done over the last several years, there is a, a movement beginning to happen. There is a, you know, you are no longer, Laura is no longer the the lone person with the flag saying, beware. There are many people carrying that flag. And I, and I've been, I've been proposing that maybe just maybe we're on the, on the verge of a second Renaissance. It's so much easier now. It's it's like, say, I, I don't have to hide anymore. Now I can come out and say, okay, yeah, I'm not being run by technology. And people see that as an inspiration instead of, oh, you know, that's, whatever, I don't have to hide it. So that's indication, I the so-called tech lash, right? All these oh, yeah. books that have been written by all these people like Frischman and, and, and many others that say that this is what's happening. But the hard part then is taking that and doing something with it because right. we can talk about the nature of the problem all day long, but if we can't adjust, if we can't adapt to changing conditions, our species cannot survive in its form. I mean, even Elon Musk, what did he say? He said, we won't survive unless we merge with machines. So we got to merge with machines. So, you know, but, but, but if people listen to him when he tried to warn about AI, we wouldn't be in that predicament now. Right. I mean, I want to sort of summarize around, if there's one thing the audience can do, if there's one thing, you know, you were you were advising a friend who finally hit hit a wall on this transaction hell that we live in, this simple machine modality, what would you advise a person to begin doing? Is it kill cancel all your social media or like what what would you do? Well, I would definitely cancel the social media just as a matter of, of just a starting point. Yeah, <laughs> right. because the social media is just uh, using you as data and it's changing your converting your mind into data and using it as a resource for itself. It's not helping your sociality. Right. So, yeah, you, it's a big distraction. It's just it's mind clutter. It's garbage. You know, yeah, definitely turn it off. But really, no, the real thing that I would focus on telling people is reclaim your mind, reclaim your mind, reground yourself. Anything that could have been done without a machine in 1970, you should be able to do. Mm. You should be, it's not that you have to do it, but you should be capable of doing it, Mm. including holding a conversation, balancing your checkbook, finding your way from point A to point B without being uh, driven around by a GPS device that actually steals Mm. brain tissue from you. Mm. I mean, in other words, there have been studies done 
on too much immersion in these things that actually that people's brain volume is being in 20 year olds has been is being lost. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I, it's funny you say that because that's been one of my my things for for years is is losing how the ability to add and subtract, losing the ability to read a math a map. Those were all mental exercises. And now that we don't have to do them, it means the brain is not getting the exercise that it used to get. And now and it's we, not self-reliant. It means right. that we're crippling ourselves to the extent that we outsource our, our primary cognitive tasks, right. our primary functions of being, of existing as a human being. The GPS actually, for a little while, I was doing the GPS thing. I, I once I understood, oh, I, should, I, I don't want to, I, I mean, I'll use it as a backup if I'm late for something but I will not use it as a thing to direct me around anymore unless I'm in a, such a hurry and I just can't be late or something like that because I don't wanna lose wayfinding capabilities. That was one thing that I actually thought was harmless. It turned out all these studies have been done about people's hippocampus and they lose that ability. I said, okay, I'm, not, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna back away from that then. I'm gonna back away from that and I'm gonna go back to charting my own course and then using that as a backup if I'm in an unfamiliar area and I'm lost or whatever, or I'm late or something like that. But my point is anything that you could do and that humans could do in 1970, you should be capable of doing them now. And in fact, it is a great reward to do for ourselves as much as possible. That machines are for things like communicating over long distances like we're doing now. We're using a machine to communicate and to broadcast. That is a human function. I mean, that's a human benefit that what we're using it for. So are we using it or is it, but if, if we are not doing anything that's interfering with our brain functions, we are not trying to pros data and machine speeds and lose the ability to concentrate. I can still read a book the same as I could in 19, uh, well, 1970, I was only six years old. I, I mean, I could read a book at six, but I mean, it's not the same thing. You know what, what right. I'm trying to say is that, that people could read books in 1970. Yeah, and, no, I and, think that's a good measure. I think that's a good, a good filter for the decisions we make. Because some intellectuals say they can no longer concentrate and read a long passage anymore, and they've noticed it in themselves, and they're trying to fix it. So, so this idea of regaining our minds or or taking our minds back, maybe you know, is yeah. uh, I love that idea. The other one I would throw in, which I I work on every day, is is choosing intimacy over volume. Yes, you know, it's kind of like what you said about you know you don't need hundreds of friends. You, you mean, don't have hundreds of friends. It's you probably a don't have a hundred, right. Right. <laughs> right? You don't have. You don't. Have, you have avatars as, as an avatar is a friend of an avatar, but the two people behind there are not. Are not. They don't know each other. And I'll I'll, sh I'll throw something in very personal, which my audience probably knows about. My mom died sadly three weeks ago. Oh, I'm sorry. And um, she was 91, and you know it was one of those. It was a blessing, but it was still very difficult. But it was just really interesting to observe how my community responded, you know, how my quote unquote friends responded, because theoretically, you know, I have 600 friends on Facebook, <laughs> like theoretically, 600 people would reach out to me, you know, and but that's not what happened. And that's fine. Yeah. I wasn't like standing there waiting to judge people. But it was just really interesting over the course of the two weeks after she passed away to observe who stepped towards me mm. some form and yeah. who, who just didn't at all. Again, no real judgment, but just a point. Of, I think the point I'm trying to make is, is intimacy, you know, regaining our mind and, and re resetting around intimacy and true meaningful connection as a measure of our life 
daily at work at home, I think are the sort of the guiding lights in all this. Yes. I would guess that the people who move towards you are the same people that you already know in the real world. Right. Right. Exactly. Because the rest of it is a simulacrum. It's for entertainment purposes only. So it's not, you're not judging the people. It's simply the technology is simulating something that doesn't exist. It's not about the people at all. Those people are in their own lives and maybe some of them are in virtual worlds and they're in real worlds, but they're not in your world unless they're in your world in real world. And so that that it's not, so people are making judgments about people when it's not, this is not about people. This is about entertainment and keeping your eyes on a screen. And and somebody said, you know, it's too bad that some of our greatest or all of our greatest minds are being utilized, you know, to figure out how to keep us clicking more links on screens. And I look at that and I go there by the grace of God, go I, because if I continued as a computer scientist, that could have been me. And I would have, I know what I would have done. I would have gotten out because I would have seen it. And I said, I want to do that. That's not what I did this for. I did this to, to improve humanity, not to not to cut it off at the knees right. and use it up and consume it. Right. So, you know, well, I, I'm, 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 I'm very grateful that you made that decision way back when. And that Me you, too. I mean, honestly, Laura, you are a role model for, well, at least from my view, a role model for the world on how humans must should go forward and make different choices and better choices to both be human and do a better job of helping other humans find their humanity. So on that note, I want to thank you again for being on the show, but more importantly, for being you and for being open to to all of this. It's been a wonderful conversation. And I know we talked the other day about maybe doing something together. I'm totally game. I do, I do believe the time is now for humanity first. And whether you call it the Renaissance or whatever you call it, I think the more of us banding together to try to wave bigger flags and ultimately change behaviors is really, really critical. So let's talk more about that. But thank you again for being here. Definitely. Thank you. Thanks for listening today. If you're in search of more opportunities to realize positive change in your life or work, and you find what I have to say helpful, you can always subscribe to my show, check out one of my new salons that are weekly virtual gatherings of like-minded folks. You can read some of my writings or just listen to one of the talks that I've given around the world over the last couple of years. And you can do it all at chriscolbert.com. While you're there, make sure to sign up for my ongoing email updates. When you do, you'll receive a free copy of the first chapter of my about-to-be-published book, Technology is Dead. Again, it's all available at chriscolbert.com. Thanks again for listening today, and I look forward to connecting more in the days ahead.